The views and opinions expressed on this show belong solely to the hosts and their guests and do not reflect the views of any outside institutions unless explicitly stated. What's up, everyone? My name is Steve Vandewall, and I'm the host of Cannabis Cum Laude, a podcast devoted entirely to cannabis. This podcast will cover a full spectrum of topics, including cultivation, business, medicine, politics, culture, advocacy, and everything in between. Because let's face it, the cannabis industry is very complicated. It's robust, and it has a ton of moving parts. So it's going to be my job to help you understand it a little bit better. So tune in every week for a brand new episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you really, really, really like the show and are interested in sponsoring, please shoot me an email at logistics at CannabisCumLaude.com. Now enjoy the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Cannabis Cum Laude. I'm your host, Steve Vanderwall, and I am here with industry expert Ramsey Nubani. Um, I started following Ramsey a few years ago. Uh, when he was doing stuff with Arroya and have followed him all the way through his new business, JR Crop Tech. I'm really excited to have, quite frankly, such a legend on the show today. Uh, Ramsey, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Steve. I really appreciate the offer. Yeah, uh, I know you got a lot going on. It was uh first time we got to meet was, what, back in December down or up in Maine uh, yep. at Dylan and Ellie's phenotasting event. Shout out to them. Uh, they're doing great things in the space too. And uh, I'm just so happy to have you here. I got a lot of cool questions I want to ask you. Um, so before we get into the interview, give me a little uh, bit about your background uh, and how it led you into the cannabis industry. Yeah. So interesting story in itself is uh, I used to be an avid soccer player. Um, I tore my ACL when I was really young playing soccer and uh when i was in high school one day i was on painkillers because i was post-op on my surgery and uh one of my friends was like hey you you seem to be struggling with this do you want to try something different and i was like sure what's the different and he's like oh you, you should try smoking some weed and i was like all right let's give it a go I, you know i was naive had no real idea what cannabis was or any of the above and um so i gave it a whirl and really fell in love with it and that blossomed and this is at 15 years old too just for perspective um and that just quickly blossomed into a mathematical equation of saying all right how much is the need the weed 60 dollars and and uh how much can i get an ounce for so i started doing the math and realizing i could easily have six of my friends buy an eighth of weed i could buy an ounce i would sell it make a little bit of money and have free smoke so um, just out of pure coincidence of liking and understanding economics, I was able to get into the industry side of um, selling. And then it led me down the path of having um, a bunch of seeds because on the East Coast, I grew up in uh, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, you're really were limited on what your selection was and often it had seeds in it. So then I had all these seeds and I was like, all right, let me try growing it. And uh, that led me into testing out, you know, growing plants out in the power lines and, you know, anywhere in the woods that I could find a, a hidden remote spot. Um, and from there, I kind of just saw a future in this industry and uh, came out to California with a girl that I was dating at the time. And uh, right when I got off the plane, I had brought weed with me out to California and her brother 
was like, why did you bring weed out here? We have, uh, and this is uh, 2007, so a little bit after they, you know, legalized medical marijuana. Um, he was like, oh, you could get a medical medical marijuana card here, and you could go to a dispensary and buy weed. And I was like, wait a second, you're telling me you could legally purchase weed? And he's like, not only can you purchase it, but you could grow it. And I was like, ah, oh, this is where it's at. <laughs> so um, the the girlfriend and I split ways. I still ended up moving out to California and then just uh, one step at a time kept going through all the trials and tribulations of, uh, you know, working in an illegal legal industry and uh, the ups and downs of like having to start, stop, you know, play a little cat and mouse all the time with uh, law enforcement mm-hmm. as, you know, everybody didn't know what was up and down. Um, and, uh, yeah, finally like got myself into position of getting more involved with commercial cultivations, being more involved with, uh, industry leading companies and, uh, really seeing out the side of like cultivation production, um, where a lot of people were always very focused on the boutique side of things. I saw that the writing on the board said that this was going to be more moved more to industrial size, um, people that nailed down production and timing. Um, those were the ones that were winning. So like early on when I was doing home grows, um, I found myself having a competitive advantage over all my friends that were growing as well, because I was so effective with everything that I did. You know, um, I always hit the timing. I never was late on having plants. You know, I became the source for all my friends for their clones and because they never seemed to get the timing right. Um, and so that was like a quick leg up into, um, how to get to production scale. So yeah, long story short, basically started out because I had knee surgery and finished out here now where I, I manage uh, commercial cultivations and, uh, helped, uh, uh, launch a fertilizer company and, uh, launch uh, substrate sensors and everything else that I've done. <laughs> yeah. I'll say one of the things that, you know, I've all, you know, I fo- have been following you closely for the last couple of years. And one thing that I really admire about you is that, you know, it's really about, to, to survive in this game and to do well, it's really about production efficiency and time management. And it, it's all time. At the end of the day, you know, the cultivation side of it itself isn't really the most complicated part, right? You have your recipe, nah. you have, you know, if you have a good environment and good genetics and you can follow a recipe, that in and of itself is relatively simple to follow, but it's all the timing and task management. Um, and, you know, I have a, a, a small t- little 10 lighter craft op going right now, which is a lot to manage. When you start yeah, looking yeah. at 50 lights, 100 lights, hundreds of lights, literally every second counts. Uh, and you seem yeah. to really make your niche in facilities management, you know, large scale facility management. So when it comes to facilities management, what are, you know, what, how do you approach managing a commercial size facility and to build off that, what are some of the more important KPIs uh, that you're looking to optimize? So, I mean, what's key with getting into commercial production, and I mean, even for your home grow, it go, this is important as well, is that you have to look at what can you automate? Um, you know, the, the thing that becomes really apparent when farming any crop is that you could become a slave to your job very quickly where um if you're hand watering you're the only source of life for that plant then so if you decide to take a weekend away from your farm you either have to hire somebody else to come in 
or you can never leave. So, you know, um, irrigation automation is, I guess, like a foundational piece because you could be a hobbyist farmer outdoors or somebody that has an indoor cultivation. Either way, you know, irrigation automation is probably like the foundation to any farm. Um, you know, I, I bought a farm out here in New Jersey and uh, the first initial steps were hand watering everything because we didn't have all the systems set up. And the, the amount of time that it took to install the irrigation system has now saved me thousands of hours of labor because I can now irrigate everything from my cell phone. And I think that, um, you know, what I've always looked at is what are pieces of human touch that we could lim and eliminate? Um, so irrigation becomes the first one because now it builds that consistency where every plant gets the same volume of water. You could put things on a schedule. It becomes reliable and controllable. Um, and then from there, I always look at climate, you know, uh, even in my most basic greenhouses that I have, having some sort of climate controller so you're not having to manage environment on a daily basis is always a key um, key thing as well. I mean, even if you have a tent with just exhaust fans, if you regulate that exhaust fan, your results are going to become a lot better than if you just had it all on or all off. Yep. Um, and I think that that's always been um, a focal point and something that we, we continuously are evolving with you know um there's there's new climate control systems coming out all the time everybody's learning what is actually needed how to better those systems as well um and that was like a a big eye-opener when i started out as uh was trying out all the different climate controllers in the industry because each one offers something um unique to in itself and i think that the more we could utilize systems to uh, automate, the better our results will be and the more consistent they will be. Um, nothing worse than having a great run and then not being able to replicate it because your system that you have is incapable of that. Um, and that's really where quality and then growth comes from. So um, I think what, what led us all into positions of success is that we actually paid attention to those details because if we didn't grow quality flour and we're able to consistently produce that, nobody would know us at all. Not only that, but nobody would come back to purchase flour from us because this industry has gotten so cutthroat um, in terms of like needing have top shelf every round. And if it's not, um, you might not be profitable as a business. Yeah, it's so weird, you know, it, what we're seeing in really every state and specifically locally as New York starts to come online is that there's really two markets. There's the top 5% of quality, like that premium, premium top shelf, which is, you know, still warranting that, you know, 3K a pound, 50 to 60 bucks an eighth. And then there's everything else, right? There's, you know, your 20 to $30 mids, we see $100 ounces around here, and there's really no middle ground. And, you know, you can either be the highest quality producer where you're getting those higher margin products, or it's a, it, it's a race to the bottom. Um, and I want to go- Well, and if you don't know your margins either, if you don't yeah. have consistency in your equipment to deliver the correct climate, the correct irrigation, and then have a roadmap to how you got from start to finish, you will never know your cogs. So if one time it cost you 450 to produce a pound 
and another time it cost you twelve hundred. Mm-hmm. You know that if you're selling a pound for twelve hundred dollars, based on the concept that you produced it for four fifty one time, you won't be profitable on the times that you, you produce it for twelve hundred. And I mean that there's a big delta if you reduce one pound yeah. per you know twenty five square feet versus uh, three pounds per twenty five square feet. And if you don't you know if you're basing all your numbers off of the medium on that you want to make sure your averages are always above it. So that way you remain profitable and have a consistent like production. Um, you know, your sales team needs to know how many pounds you're producing. Your distributors want to know how many pounds you're producing so they could start, you know, figuring out their, their, their sales network and saying, Hey, okay, I'm going to be able to pick up these units from this gentleman this time, or this woman this time and have some sort of reliance on that because you'll lose customers quickly if you're not consistent with them either because when they come and they're excited thinking they're going to make money and they get to your facility and it's not what they bought the last time they're very bummed and you know they'll probably walk out the door not purchasing anything because there's too many other people that they could go to now um, to get what they're looking for yeah and one of the things that i've realized in terms of you know managing your cogs and your costs and staying consistent is a lot of growers that I know who've been doing this way longer than I am, uh, or longer than I have, aren't factoring in time into their cost of production. You know, I was fortunate enough to be, you know, I've only really been cultivating for three and a half years, which, you know, I have friends who've been doing this for two decades. Um, But I was fortunate enough to have a mentor who learned from the likes of you and craft farmer and these really serious uh, and talented and smart cultivators and was, you know, I was lucky enough to have him, you know, transfer that knowledge to me. So I learned my first real grow was all, automated and i really kind of missed a lot i really kind of never had the opportunity to develop bad habits um and i know a lot of growers who've been doing this a lot longer than me who i have a ton of respect for who are still spending seven eight hours a day hand watering their plants and it's you know i've always feel kind of strange as somebody who hasn't been doing something as long as somebody else saying hey i have some advice for you you could buy, you know, why are you, why are you, you know, hand watering when you could easily set up, you know, for your grow a $200 auto irrigation system. So, you know, I think the, the long story short time is a really important factor, especially when you start to scale your, you know, cultivation. Cause I think how in the hell would you ever efficiently hand water a hundred light operation? You'd never be able to. Um, and as we yeah, start you'd to- be surprised. There's a lot of people that go out and build these massive commercial facilities based on the concept that they're going to be hand watering. And then when they actually go into application and they reach out to somebody like myself and say, hey, we're failing, you know, what do we need to do? Uh, it's like a no brainer. The writing is on the wall. Hey, you have to change up your process. So like what you did in your house, you know, and a lot of people bless them. They, you know, they came from a garage grow. They figured out how to get licensed. They figured out how to raise the capital. Um, what they weren't forecasting was what were the labor demands going to be. And then that person that they're training, everybody's got a different touch. You know, I always like to tell people, you know, if we grab a, a book and it weighs five pounds per se, and you ask, 10 people, how much that book weighs, you're going to have 10 different weights because everybody's touch and feel is a little bit different. If you're somebody that works out every day, when you're lifting that pot, it's going to be a different weight. And that's where substrate sensors 
And the technology that has been developing around that comes into play because now we're reading a graph and making decisions based off of a graph. You know, I like to throw out a free tidbit of a game for anybody is if you're rooting in cuttings and you're not using a scale to weigh that tray of cuttings, how are you to ever know what the moisture content is in it? Mm. Now, if you utilize a scale to weigh it out and you say, hey, this is the dry, how dry I want that tray to be before I water. Now, everybody in your staff knows that until it hits that weight, don't irrigate it. So if a weekend employee shows up, they come in, they can weigh them out and they say, oh, this one's not ready yet. I'm going to wait till the next day. It takes out that human error in everything. And that that's why hand watering is just, it's impossible to build consistency and be productive um, when everybody's going to have a different count that they use, a different touch that they use. That's right. Um, and that's really where we build uniformity and uniformity is what drives success in every which way. Um, and I think that, you know, planning is such a big part of this. Uh, you know, if you are designing your facility and your propagation room is on the opposing end of all your flower rooms and you're walking back and forth from a mom room to a propagation room to the flower rooms, you know, you always want to have things sequenced where your moms, your propagation, your veg, your flower, your dry, your trim are all going in one direction um, because every time an employee walks from one side of the facility to the next, you're one, exposing yourself to pest issues, and two, that's time going back and forth. These facilities are not getting smaller. They're constantly getting bigger. So every time that an employee walks back and forth, it's wasted time in the day. So the more efficient we have and effective they are with their time, um, the better our costs will be in terms of producing that pound. Um, so that's why, you know, taking from commercial ag, we use carts to move plants from veg to flower. People aren't walking over with one plant at a time. And that's that's where substrate choices come into play as well. If you start in a really large substrate, it limits how many plants you could carry over to the room in one given time. So a lot of people that see my growing practices um, that Josh and I have really like pushed forward uh, come from commercial ag where we learned hey, these guys are growing in a four by four block for a reason because they need to manage that space as effectively as possible. And then they need to manage that labor time. So now they can load a, a ton of plants up onto a cart. And that one employee, instead of walking back and forth with two plants, is walking back and forth with 60 plants. Yep. Um, or you have a cart that's bringing hundreds of plants. So now their uh their time management became so much more effective uh their use of time became so much more effective because they chose the right substrate for each stage of growth and i think that when we are building things i i always look to henry ford you know and and his mindset of how he set up the assembly line and that's kind of what we want to do for cultivation is set up assembly lines and mechanisms that allow us to work within what our desire is. And I think that we're going to continue seeing, you know, further advancements for the cannabis world, but a lot of these already exist in the vegetable world. It's funny that you bring up Henry Ford. I, uh, I often think of the movie, the founder about Ray Kroc and how he really, that one scene where they're, they're really mapping out every single step on like, okay, fries are going to go here and you're going to salt here. And it's really, it, you know, is 
it's oh, when you're doing this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times a day or a year, seconds turn to minutes, turn to hours, turns to dollars. And when you're, you know, in a legal market like New York or California, where taxes are really high and compliance costs are really high, and and then and the headache of 280e, you need to be doing everything you can to reduce your costs. And it, it may seem small and marginal at the start, but over repetition, you know, repetition after repetition, those are going to save people a lot of dollars and therefore increase, you know, their profitability in the long run. So it's every Not little th- like that, but like, think about if you're setting up an SOP and you're requesting a, an employee to do a specific thing, the simpler you make it for that employee to do that task, the more likely they're going to do it. So if in your task, you say that uh, you need to water your clone trays and that water needs to go to the drain, if you don't have a sink in your propagation room, that means they're going to carry a bucket over and then have to carry that bucket somewhere else. So like building in and thinking forward before you design your facility goes a long way. So, you know, I like that example that you listed as Ray Kroc, when they took that tennis court and they mapped it all out. Yeah. That's that's what Josh and I do. You know, I I, I will say that like I've always been I, I I call it such a blessing in my life that him and I connected because we have two different minds, but combined we have this like really great mind. Um, and that's how we think about things. When we're laying everything out, we're thinking, okay, well, what are all the tools and what are all the things that somebody's gonna have to do in this space and how do we maximize that space? Um, because we're always paying, you're either buying the building or you're renting it, but either way you're paying per square foot. Um, so like you want to maximize every square foot and not have any dead space. Cause if you build your veg space twice as large as it's needed, then you have empty space on those tables. So now you paid for things that never going to get used. And same with the propagation room. If you build your propagation room 10 times the size and you don't ever plan on being a, a producer of cuttings to sell to the market then what was the point of having all that additional space? It's just wasted. Um, So I think that's like such a big piece. Um, And I think why uh, Josh and I have succeeded so well is we've conceptually thought a lot about everybody's time and the efficiency of how to go about producing this crop from start to finish and, and really just mirroring what we learned in commercial agriculture. Yeah, and I, I want to build on this because it's efficiency and data really seem to be, you know, the platform that you have built. And that's really at the core of it. You know, that's how I approach cultivation and really all systems in business in general. You know, data, data-driven data decisions are not unique to, you know, this industry. You know, it's now that we have more tech available and we have really more things that we can look at, you can really start to make uh, data-driven decisions, which is something that I've learned a lot from you over the past couple of years. How are you using data with your clients or with your own grows to improve cultivation from both a quality and a yield perspective? Great question. So one, uh, it's foundationally based off of the data that we receive back from our um, processing team. So what I mean by that is if the trim team says they found uh, mold in the product, uh, now we're going to go back and look at the data and see where can we pinpoint where that mold came from. If they're reporting that 
there was no mold in the product. All right, let's go back and look at how did we achieve that result? Um, if the color was hitting the mark and the nose hit the mark, you know, let's go back. So like um, a lot of what we're doing is recording every step of the way and we're doing our best to um, hit all of our set points that we believe are the correct ones. And then once we get to the finished product and we know what the yield and the quality of that product came out to be, we always go back and analyze the data from start to finish to say, where did we change or what, what happened differently? Because believe it or not, you know, I've had AC failures that have led me to learn that, you know, warmer nighttime temperatures still produce purple flower. So like, you know, you don't need to go as cold with your climate to get that um, color change in your product. And that came from, you know, just mistakes almost or equipment failures in that sense, where I was like, wow, my room temperature never got below 70 degrees and I have a perfectly purple flower. How did we do that? What did we end up doing? Oh, okay. Well, we changed X, Y, and Z things because the ACs were not operating correctly. So we started making adjustments to accommodate that failure, but it led to a better result. So now we start incorporating in, you know, maybe dimming lights in the last week and running a little bit warmer of a temperature to maintain VPD better and still get that end result of a purple flower, but with way less mold in it. Um, so like where, where we try to um, build in redundancy with everything is we have our employees and staff go record plant heights, uh, feed volumes, ECs, um, you know, runoff data. Uh, they take photos of the crop every week, twice a week. Um, you know, we have a graphical representation of the climate on two different con uh, systems. So like we usually use cultivation management software to help us forecast out all the tasks and everything else going on. And then we have our climate controller because um, the, the data that we are making decisions off of is based off of our climate controller data um, versus the cultivation management software because the sensors that we're purchasing for our climate controllers are way more accurate than the cultivation management software. But we use both of them to kind of get the general picture with the, the cultivation management software where we're seeing all the photos, all the crop registration coming in, uh, the general gist of what's going on with the climate. And then we look back at our um, climate controller and the data that we're uh, collecting from that and we're pinpointing exact moments and seeing, all right, what were the delta differences? Where did it hit the mark? Where did it not? Um, and that's always been key to our success as a business because a lot of people don't record these analytics and they don't take the time to ever analyze it. You know, like I, I think it's ironic when um, working with people that have all of the data but have never gone back to review one of their crops. So they're more or less just using it to make sure they're hitting their sequence, but never analyzing what they might've done run to run to make something better. And how can you improve? Uh, I could tell you factually that my cold, my, my temperature set points in the last two years have changed hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason why is because each run, something happens that I learn a little bit more for. So before I used to do a week by week climate adjustment, I learned that that actually is not as effective as 
blocking it out into maybe four segments and having four different set points that I could function functionally move through. Um, the reason being is one, um, I found that those little micro changes had no effect on terpenes or potency. So it, I wanted to reduce my labor load and have better consistency in my controllability. So if you have nine set points versus four set points, the likelihood that I'm going to me mess up those four set points cuts in half right. because I'm not having to check week to week and say, okay, did I remember to make that adjustment on top of all the other, you know, moving parts in, in that run. Um, and then from run to run, I keep figuring out a little bit more about how the plants respond to these little nuance change, you know, in those four blocks where, hey, do I need to have such a big day-night differential? Is that actually equating to um, more terpenes or more color or uh, faster ripening? Um, and a lot of what I keep concluding is that, no, it, you know, like the, the previous notations of needing a 10 degree differential to get the flower to really swell up isn't as accurate as I once thought. And so I think that, you know, as a farmer, in order for us to evolve and keep producing a higher quality, better, pro uh, you know, better production crop, um, we have to always look back at the past history data and say, you know, year to year, are we getting better results? And that's going to come from the yield information. And if we are year to year getting better results, what are those micro changes doing and how are we been navigating through them? Um, and that's that's just a huge part of this. Uh, um, I think that for every grower, the, the more you record information, the better you're going to be. Um, and, uh, you know, I think vegetable farmers have that so embedded in their brain because they're not getting to do... Um, five cycles in a year yeah they're getting one shot at their crop um to hit the mark so like for me growing in jersey right now um here's a reflection of it year one i planted in march april time i was like all right i'm gonna do outdoor style you know large plants hit like a crazy yield per acre um here in jersey there's a lot of caterpillars um there's crazy climate where we have like hurricanes and high humidity so growing really large plants um you know in the west coast outdoor style uh was a complete train wreck uh so then year two we lowered planting density started planting a little bit later still had issues because the plants still got too tall so um in our third cycle we quickly learned that starting our plants you know propagating them june 14th planting july 1st gave us the best result of like a four foot tall plant that yielded well, had the best quality, the least labor that went into it. So maybe our yields aren't as extravagantly high, but our cost of producing the pounds, even though our yields have decreased, actually lowered, we're way more profitable per pound than production, um, which is huge because if I'm paying labor to throw away product, then that was just a waste of my money. But now if my labor is only harvesting good products, now I'm maximizing that ROI on their time. So you have to have that historical information to look back and say, okay, like, are these changes improving? And then as you get closer year or year, you're going to dial in that day and know exactly when do you take your cuttings, exactly when do you plant. 
Um, and the advantage of an indoor cultivation is we're so cyclical that you can make a change run over run and yeah. quickly see those results. Cause three months later, you're going to have a result from that change. Um, and I think that's like the most exciting part about cannabis cultivation is how fast our cycles go through. Yeah. I mean, to be, you know, to efficiently be able to pull five runs a year out of a room. I mean, it's a, it's a lot less, you know, I feel for some of these, you know, outdoor farmers and vegetable farmers, like you said, they get one shot. And a lot of these guys, that's your livelihood, right? That's yes. how you feed your families. That's how you pay your bills. That's how you live. There's no room for error, you know? No. So it's, that's, that's really what I like about indoor cultivation is not only the efficiency, but being able to turn it over and turn it over. That's just kind of the cool thing about the cannabis plant. Um, and what I really like about, you know, utilizing data and a lot of this, all this new information that we didn't really have access to before is not only is it improving efficiency and quality and yield, but we're starting to see a lot of this data kind of disprove a lot of the, the bro science that the industry was built on. Yes. Things like flushing and all these things that we're coming to find out aren't as relevant as we previously thought. Um, oh, I mean... You know, the think about the people that use water chillers in their tanks thinking that cold water is going to stimulate the roots now the funniest thing about that is is when you actually measure the water temperature at the dripper because the water that is actually going to your plants has been sitting in the irrigation line in your room warmer temperatures so that cold water chiller that you set up in a tank has no effect on the water that's actually coming out in the room. And I think that these are all like little, like, you know, bro science things that came out that people spent tons of money on. And now here we are really real time seeing, Hey, like that actually doesn't have an effect on the plants. And, you know, a lot of these like funny, quirky nuances and, you know, tech that's been out, uh, like super high CO2 levels. I knew people that were running like 1800 parts per million CO2. And they would come to me and be like, why do my plants look like crap? Um, and you're choking your plants out. You know, like these are things that we factually could prove that, you know, there's certain levels of CO2 that are helpful for the plants and there's certain levels that become toxic um, and also dangerous for your employees to work yeah. in the room. Uh, so like, I think that the, 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 to your point, the best part about all this is that um, real knowledge and science is there. The tools for us are becoming more available. You know, uh, 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 I'll throw the name out there. Trollmaster really made it affordable for home growers, yep. people that can't afford a $10,000 climate controller to actually get something foundational that will allow them to make, you know, um, controlled uh, applications of how to manage their grow. Um, and I think that that's beautiful because it, it gives everybody a little bit more of a competitive edge than they had before if they didn't adopt these kind of technologies. Yeah. And I'll tell you this, you know, for the longest time I was running with no substrate sensors. I was guessing I was doing kind of cookie cutter irrigation strategy. And really one of the, one of the first things, you know, when I started following you was learning about Arroyo, the Taros 12 spot checking. And I was like, I got to have one of these. I got to see what the hype is all about. And I quickly realized how, uh, I, how bad I was underwatering my plants because I was hearing these guys saying pulling two to three pounds per light and I was following all these and I was not getting even nearly that. 
I started using my taros and I realized like, wow, I'm substantial. I'm really underfeeding my plants. And even that, that one change in itself, really understanding what exactly is going on in my substrate and dialing in my irrigation accordingly has changed my game substantially, both from a quality and yield perspective. Now, irrigation strategy is, you know, something that you um, have helped me on with a lot, have something that you help with a lot of your clients, but it's really not a cookie cutter approach. You know, everyone's environment's a little bit different. Obviously all plants and cultivars drink at different rates and need different things. How do you kind of walk me through your process of developing an irrigation strategy and how does that change from client to client? So first I would say anybody that buys a substrate sensor, when you purchase it, if it's data logging, the first week of having it, put it in, don't look at the data at all, all right? I know it's gonna be tempting, I know it's gonna be difficult, but allow it to just record what you're doing now. Um, the reason why I say that is you will be very surprised as to what a cannabis plant can actually take. So a lot of times when um, I was onboarding new clients and people to substrate sensor technology, uh, they would stick it into their substrate and they would immediately flush their plants the next day. And I would say, well, why did you just do this? Well, the EC was at a nine. All right. Well, how did your plants look? They looked great. So why'd you flush it? Because isn't that toxic to the plants? No, reality is these cannabis plants can handle EC ranges from, you know, a two all the way up to 20. Um, and uh, how do I build irrigation strategy? Um I build it based off of what is actually happening in the substrate. So, um, you know, the simple math of things, if you know your shot size and you know the rate in which your plants are drying back overnight, you could build mathematically from there. So if you have a 10% dryback, you know, meaning you went from 50% water content to 40% water content. So it's a 10% by volumetric water content. Um, then you and you know your shot size is say a three percent shot you could quickly calculate that you would need three irrigations to get you back nine percent and four irrigations to get you to twelve percent so in that scenario you would apply four irrigation events to rehydrate your medium for the next day and then let it dry back um uh the cool thing that you'll see with using substrate sensors is that as you manipulate the VPD, the vapor pressure deficit in your air, um, the higher your VPD, the faster your plants will transpire, the lower your VPD, the slower they're going to transpire. So as your VPD maybe rises in your room and you go to a higher level VPD, you could automatically expect and you will see in the data that your rate of dryback will increase. So really the way I kind of look at it is... Um, your your climate is what throttles up your irrigation or down your irrigation so the higher vpd or lower your vpd will force your plants to transpire more or less um and then when i'm choosing what type of irrigation strategy to use i'm doing it based off of the phase of growth so um just for simple sake of conversation uh generative growth you're using larger irrigation events less frequent vegetative growth you're using smaller irrigation events more frequent um and so we're kind of tying in some of our strategy to actually what's happening in the room and that's where both climate data and substrate data is so important because 
if you're only looking at one part of the picture, you're never going to be able to make an educated decision as to like what to do next or how to achieve what your goal is. So if you're wanting to increase drybacks and you're sitting at a 0.9 VPD, the all, there's two options you could do. You could either reduce the number of irrigations you're giving so your plant forcibly has to dry back more, or you could try and dry the environment out a little bit more so your plant transpires at a faster rate, creating a larger dryback. Um, and so there's like two options of how you would manipulate the situation to achieve your end goal of a larger dryback. And I think that's really important because a lot of the industry right now has become so focused on irrigation strategy and that's kind of what they're defining crop steering as. Um, in reality, it is not just irrigation strategy, it's climate irrigation and cultural. Um, so how you actually manage your crop in terms of pruning um, events, that has a vegetative and a generative effect on the crop um, and will also have an effect on the transpiration rate. So um, for example, you know, there's a lot of people that uh, do a heavy D leaf, all right? The day after that heavy D leaf, what is to be expected in your irrigation strategy? That you're going to tra probably transpire a bit less because there's less material in the room. Exactly. Now, that logical thought sometimes gets so overlooked that, hey, I just took off a, a vast majority of the plant's ability to transpire, all right, and go through photosynthesis because they just removed a ton of leaves. If you are not reducing your irrigation events that subsequent day, your plant is going to sit waterlogged. And now you could have issues according to what's going on um, in the root zone where I've seen it happen. People are like, oh, everything was going great. I deleafed them. And I mean, when I say they deleafed them, they pulled like 90% of the leaves off the plant. Naked. Yeah. And then they wondered why everything stalled out. And what happened? And they didn't make accommodating changes. Not, you know, for me, anybody that knows me knows I don't do heavy D leaves. But if you are going to do it, at least know how to accommodate that plant event and how to ado uh, uh, adapt your climate and irrigation to, you know, to to go with what you're trying to achieve. Um, and I think that that's kind of important. So um, how I manage my irrigation strategy is I'm looking at all the fork uh, upcoming events. If you're in a greenhouse, you're looking at upcoming coming weather events as well. So now you're in, and outdoor. So, you know, your irrigation strategy basically is based off of out, you know, outdoor climate when you're outside and in a greenhouse and in an indoor environment, you're basing it off of what are your upcoming plant events? Like when's your next de leaf? Um, uh, what stage of growth? What are you doing with your climate? Uh, you know, you quickly want to make those changes because if you're going from really warmer temperatures to cooler temperatures at night, you want to make sure you're hitting your dry back from last irrigation event to first irrigation event. So your plants aren't overly respiring at night um, when you're going through that cool nighttime change. Yeah, it's funny. I actually, so I actually do do um, two, I do on day 21, I'll do a, a very light, light default. Just like lowers, clean up the canopy, nothing serious. And then on day 42, I'll do more of a heavy default um, and I'll switch over back to my generative steering. And I literally just this week, actually, today's Thursday, it was Tuesday. 
I had crazy humidity spikes going into Tuesday and because I hadn't adjusted my irrigation strategy. And I'm thinking, you know, I dr- even had dropped my shots, right? I was, I was irrigating, you know, I had my, my X amount of P1s. And then, you know, I went from bed where I was hitting my, my 3% shots every hour on the hour until an hour before lights off. And then I dropped it substantially just to have, you know, my one uh, refresher shot for veg. And so my, I cut about 45% of the water out of my irrigation and I'm checking my troll master and I'm having crazy humidity spikes. And I'm like, this really doesn't make any sense. And then, you know, yeah, it does make perfect sense because I just removed 30% of the biomass in the room, which means it's photosynthesizing 30% less. So there was just all this water sitting in this room, driving my humidity up. And after, you know, I raised, I raised my, uh, my VPD ended up going up. I was at about a 1.1, 1.2 and draw my irrigation. And finally, um, I was able to, to, um, kind of get things under control, but literally just earlier this week, I saw some something like that very similar. So um, without, you know, any, without substrate monitors or environmental monitors, you know, I would have just kept rolling tide through the end and probably would have really lacked being able to optimize my crop. So uh, yeah, it's important to keep things, uh, you know, that's a lot of things. That's something that I think a lot of people don't really keep in mind is these little changes can have pretty drastic results. Um, well, they even have a drastic result on fertilizer uptake. So like if you go and remove a bunch of leaves, you might reduce your calcium uptake. So uh, we're finding that when you do your last leaf is so important because if you do a very, very heavy leaf, you know, let's say three weeks out from harvest, um, there's a chance that you're going to have botrytis due to the lack of calcium mobility now that you took away a lot of the fan leaves that were allowing calcium to be more mobile as it was going through transpiration. So like all these things kind of play a big effect on what's going on um, with your crop. And I think that what, you know, why Josh and I with our fertilizer, why we're so adamant about keeping high levels of calcium present throughout the entire run and, you know, not going to a crazy flush uh, at the end of your harvest is because calcium is so important to the plants. And so we tend to see this juncture where people do a massive de-leaf and then they flush their plants. And so now you've, you've gotten rid of a lot of your plants transpiration. So you're already lowering your calcium uptake and then you're lowering your feed solution so now you have less calcium available to the plants by, you know, feed solution, less calcium uptake due to a heavy uh, deleafing, and then you wonder why there is a lot of botrytis in your run. Um, and we've been able to directly correlate those events to bud rot issues in your crop, and uh, wow. that's been a big thing to kind of keep in mind. So that's how all this data starts to compile because we, you know we do a lot of observe and report where you know josh and i walk through our facilities together and we'll start analyzing what's going on what what were the plant events so if you ever see on the bottom of your plant um the leaves getting all like crispy and uh like kind of dying off a lot Mm -hmm. of like necrosis basically happening um specifically on the bottom of your plant we were able to quickly figure out not even quickly let me take, take that back. 
over years of doing this, <laughs> we were able to f- figure out and deduce that there is a correlation to when we do our last leaf and that showing up. And if we did it too soon, we had a heavier amount of necrosis on the bottom of the plants, all the crisping and stuff happening. Then when we waited later in the cycle, maybe a week before harvest to do that last leaf. Um, and that, and it all goes back into hand in hand again with adjusting climate. So you are doing all these lowering temperature events at the end of your flower cycle, hitting it with this massive de-leaf. So lowering temperatures already reducing your rate of transpiration and uh, photosynthesis. Uh, now removing all the fan leaves, these things start to hit and combining that with a flush, it starts to add up as to what's actually causing wow. all that necrosis on the bottom of the plant. So now that I hope everybody's paying attention to that. Cause I've also noticed that too, if I got a couple places on my table right now are a little crispy, um, and I'm wondering if that's why. Yeah. Most likely you're, you're going to be able to start teeing up now like hey when did i do that do you leave where were the climate changes when did this show up and you're gonna be like oh wow well i did the de-leaf climate change this showed up three days later all right let's let's start manipulating when maybe i do my climate change or when do i do my de-leaf but you, you could start to see the cause and effect from each of those that's fascinating i had no idea <laughs> i want to uh i want to switch gears a little bit um, sure. and you offer a really interesting perspective because, you know, you got into the California market really when it was, you know, medical and really getting off the ground and have, you know, worked with clients, uh, across the country and new markets. And, um, I'm assuming there has been a lot of change from where it started to where it's ended. Um, not, we won't cover the whole, you know, 18 or 20 years, but how have you seen in the last five years the industry has changed and and where do you think it's heading? Um, so I personally believe the industry has changed in a lot of positive ways. Um, you know, people have had to become a lot more professional, so it helps the end consumer. Uh, at the end of the day, I think anybody that's growing cannabis um, should have a desire to make people happy and uh, have some sort of, you know, benefit, um, holistic benefit from consuming this product. Uh, so I think in a lot of ways, the regulations and the um, advancements of capital uh, that have come into this industry have uh, moved it in a forward positive direction. So a lot of people, when we used to grow in our home grows, used a lot of toxic um, products. And I remember I've, I've had a lot of arguments with friends because I was very against um, using some of the chemicals they were using for pesticide, you know, pest management or to increase yields. So I think that through regulations um, and, uh, you know, demand for higher quality pro- product, it's advanced us because now you don't hear as many people, even in the, the homegrown market, using toxic products on their crops. So I think that's been a, a very positive thing. Um, another thing is that it, it's forced everybody to elevate their game. So, um, where a person that came into this industry because they just wanted to make money, um, they're no longer in it because, uh, there has to be a passion and a desire for, um, excellence for you to really succeed in this industry right now. 
So I think that's been another advancement. You know, I, I, I hear a lot of people that give the crying story like, oh, these commercial grows have ruined the industry. No, you need to level up your game in terms of what you're doing as a farmer, because if you're saying the person that's managing a thousand light facilities producing better quality flour than you, then, you know, we have to start really looking at that paradigm. So I think that um, it's forced a lot of people to become more effective and um, a lot more of a crafts, craftsmanship and what they're doing because uh, we are competing against people that have taken on large venture capitalism and are producing an extreme amount of product where they don't need to have as high of a margin per pound for them to make their numbers. So it pushes the people that are in the craft side to really hone in on their craft um, and produce a better quality fr- flower. I know people that have 10 light grows and they're doing phenomenally well. Yeah. They're making more money than the head cultivator at a 50,000 square foot facility. And that's because they actually know what they're doing and they're able to provide a really good product. Um, I think a lot of the the challenges that have come in this industry right now is that there's still a lot of uh, high barrier to entry um, for somebody that wants to do this legally. Um, it's not as easy to obtain a license as it should be. And I think that's some of like my qualms with the, the industry. Like uh, if, if I, if I knew how to do the regulatory side better and lobby better, um, I probably wouldn't consult. I would do my own grow because that's where my passion would be. But because there's so much red tape, yeah. um, I've had yeah. to strategize and learn how to partner with others that could do the jobs that I can't do. So they know how to raise the capital. I hate asking for money. Yeah. Uh, that's just not me. I don't like going around to people and saying, hey, I need your money to do this job and I'm going to give you a percentage of the business. I'd rather save my cash and do it my way. Um, right. But that that has, hasn't stopped me from figuring out how to work within this industry. So you people have had to become creative. So in a person's shoes like me, where I was good at growing, but bad at some of the, the, the business acumen of getting the licenses and the property and the capital to build it, um, I partner with people. And so that creates an opportunity for others to succeed. So I think that there's a lot of jobs that have been created, a lot of, um, uh, sub verticals to this industry that have been created as legalization has gone there. Um, what I foresee happening is that um, a lot of these larger MSOs are either going to um, transcend to become like the Budweiser or they're going to cripple and go under as a lot of the head cultivators um, go back to running their own facilities. So like my hope for this industry is that the barrier to entry to open up a legal cultivation um, is lowered and becomes more accessible uh, and that, you know, people are able to run a 2,500 square foot grow with like five people and make a good living off of it again. Because I think that wealth distribution was my favorite part of the cannabis industry. You know, before the massive legalization came in and all the VC came in, um, all of my friends made a great living. Um, Now the, the, the sad story is, is hearing them working like a slave for a company only to earn, you know, $120,000 a year where they were earning 200 plus thousand dollars a year running their own grow. Um, so I think that that's been probably like my greatest agita of this industry is just seeing my friends and my social network have to succumb to taking a job 
with the commercial cultivation and not being able to position themselves in a way that they still got to be their own, you know, entrepreneur and boss and have control of their their future. Um, you know, the hardest thing for us as uh, contract farmers is, you know, being um, uh, being brushed under or pushed under somebody else's wing of like their business decisions and the the way that they want to operate and it's often people that don't even smoke cannabis which is yeah. like a hard thing for me because yeah. like i'm a smoker you know like i enjoy this whether you're consuming it as an edible or you're consuming it as topical or you're consuming it as a smokable um i think the people that are actually consuming it um should have more of a say on how this is yes. developed than somebody that's never consumed it and just had the the capital and wherewith to get the foundation of the business going um and so i think that like i said uh you know my hope in what i see the future is that the barrier to entry to open up a license grow gets lower and lower um some of the the massive facilities get dismantled a little bit and more mom and pop grows come back into it um kind of like what we've seen happen with the beer industry uh where by capita i think right now like craft beer is grossing more than yes. you know the commercial beer side um and i think that's what we'll see happen in our industry where there's going to be like this continued point of very commercialization industrialization price points dropping down 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 and then um through that there'll be like the phoenix that kind of rises back up and brings a, a nice market back into place and everything will level out a little bit more well, the reality is, and just like any industry, and you know, our industry, especially from you know the craft farmers, or not literally not lands, but like the small batch farmers, <laughs> um, you know, there's a big uh, a distaste for big cannabis, right? You know, they're they're going to come in, they're going to take over, they're going to swallow us up. And I'll be honest, you know, even before I was a cultivator and got into the business, I was I was in activism and I would, did a lot of lobbying. And, you know, we were, you know, going to Albany saying, you know, it's the, oh, you're welcome. It's these multi-state operators that are killing the industry, killing the industry, blah, blah, blah. And it's what we've realized later in the game is it's it's less about that. And it's more about the over-regulation and over-taxation and creating an environment where small businesses can't thrive, leading to distressed licenses, leading to acquisition. So it, it's yep. really not a chicken and an egg question anymore. It's, it's more... Overtaxation, overregulation leads to distress license, leads to these MSO acquisitions. And everybody is like up in arms about we hate the MSOs, blah, blah, blah. You know, whether or not the you know, you have your feelings towards the multi-state operators or these big companies, just like in any industry, cannabis, food, beverage, whatever, there's always gonna be your Budweisers and your crafts and your proctors and gambles, and there's always gonna be your small batch whatever, right? Just like, you know, Wegmans is huge here. You can go into the beer store and you can buy Budweiser, you can buy Bushlight, you can buy whatever, and then you can buy a whole selection of small batch beers, just like in any other industry, maple syrup. So I think what we have, like you said, we're going to, you have to get used to the fact that the large cannabis companies, they're not going anymore. This is a new industry and that's what comes with the new industry. But I tell people, don't worry about size, right? If you master your craft, right? I always use my uncle, my aunt and uncle for an, as an example. They've run an Italian restaurant for, I think, coming up on 25 years. They have had virtually never changed their menu, right? 
And every single day, my uncle is in there making the sauce and testing the sauce. And there's a reason that through COVID and through all these times and new restaurants coming online that they have continued to thrive. It's because just like a cultivator, right? That's why you were saying a lot of these VCs and stuff, they don't even smoke cannabis. I don't believe that you could run a cultivation facility successfully and not understand your product and smoke it, right? It's like running a steakhouse and being a vegan. You know, you you couldn't yep. really, you have to understand your product. You have to taste your product. My uncle, every single day, my uncle and my cousin, they run the restaurant together. They're tasting their sauce. They're checking it. And that's why they've been successful. So, you know, a message to all the small farmers and mom and pops, like keep doing your thing, specialize in your craft, stay in your lane, focus on quality. And you're right. You may never run a hundred thousand square foot facility, but if you have, if you're really efficient in your systems, you're using your data, you have a good, reliable team, you can kill it and you can build generational wealth and you can have a good distribution of wealth for yourself and all your employees in a relatively small square footprint. There's always going to be room for all of us. So I think know. something that you said though, is so important is that lobby. Are you going to your city council meetings? Are you being an involved member of society? Yeah. Um, because I think that it, it, the only way we change things like, yes, I definitely at times I get annoyed that, a state only allows four licenses to operate. That's a monopoly. Like history says monopoly. Yes. we don't have the best interests of the consumer, even though that's the way they say it. it's like to protect the consumer. We're only going to allow four license. No, fuck that. That is to protect the lobbyists that paid millions of dollars to get that license. That's right. Uh, so I think that, you know, we as a community have to be vocal, have to present ourselves well, like, Please don't go to a fucking meeting looking like a, a a guy that just got out the garden and smoked 10 joints. Yeah. Go there looking dapper, you know, yeah. present us well. Like I, I say, tie, you know, you know? <laughs> yes, like come out there saying like, hey, this is who I am. This is what I do and represent it. You know, like that's how we change minds. Yeah. If we're always looking like, you know, um, the hippies off the hill nobody's ever going to take us serious. That's but right. if you clean yourself up, you come in, you speak with an educated mind on the situation, you know, we're going to advance that. I think that every state has a fiduciary responsibility to its citizens to allow us to run a business that benefits the consumer. And that's how they always define monopolies is when it doesn't benefit the consumer. That's why Amazon is not considered a monopoly because they're providing the best price points to the consumer. Now, if they start charging a higher price point than the consumer could get elsewhere, now they would be considered an, a monopoly. So I think that to your point, like if you're a home grower, uh, one, don't let the greed of outside things ruin your life. So what I mean by that is the grass is not greener on the other side. These large companies, they're not crushing it and making millions and millions of dollars in that's why you see all this consolidation of all these MSOs. They're selling out assets because yep. they couldn't manage all of that bandwidth. Um, so I think starting small building, you know, uh, you asked me early on about some of my journey. I started with one light. By the time I was 25 years old, I had 300 lights. You know how that came about? I saved my money. Yes. Save your money. Yes. Manage your... <laughs> manage your wealth like uh don't take every dollar you earn and go and spend it on flashy things because that flashy thing now 
is going to cost you later. So what I did is every time I harvested, I took out how much money I needed for rent. Yeah. I took up how much money I needed for food. And I, when I say food, I mean ramen. I mean like raw chicken and steaks that I yep. could like cook and really conserve my money. I didn't eat out at all. Um, right. To this very day, you know, when Josh and I were building our business and it came to opening up the fertilizer company, uh, we saved our money and put up 100% of the cost to manufacture that fertilizer. So Huge. instead of taking every dollar we earned and putting it into our bank accounts, we collectively said, hey, we're gonna save a large portion of our wealth so that way we could expand our business. And that's how um, people that succeed and get to these higher levels of accolades, they're taking their money and investing it, you know, investing it towards their future. So um, instead of buying a Rolex watch, go buy 10 more lights, right. you know, like instead of uh, going by a BMW, go invest into your AC systems and your climate controllers and your irrigation system, because there's going to be an ROI to that. And once it hits, now you are able to expand as a grower and you're going to get to your end goal of what you want to make financially. And um, let me tell you too, that like, as you make more money, know when to say stop, like this is enough. Know when to step aside from a deal because greed gets a hold of all of us. And I'm yes. guilty of it myself at times, you know, like good opportunity comes in front of me and all I'm seeing is the dollar signs and these blinders come on as to like what the reality of that is. You know, I've been approached by companies abroad um, and at first you fly out, you're all excited. You're like, all right, I'm going to get to operate in another country. Like this is going to be dope, like crazy. And then reality comes in. Okay. Well, how many times a month am I going to have to fly out there? And, oh, it's a 10 hour flight to get there. And then I'm going to be gone. And then when I come back now I have all this. So like, be aware of what decisions you're making yeah. and think through them. You know, don't get excited about every offer and opportunity that comes in. Save your money so you could reinvest into things. Um, you know, having capital available is really what allows people to succeed. Um, and if you have money, you're also a lot more confident. So if you do approach a job or approach a scenario, if you don't need that job, most likely you're going to get that job. So um, what I mean by that is yes. if you're going in and you're applying for a position with a company and you already have a good, great lifestyle going, you're going to come in with an, a, a sense of confidence yeah. that they're going to feed off of and they're going to want to hire you because they're going to, they could, most, most managers and bosses could usually sense when somebody knows their worth yes. and that makes them more uh, enticing to want to hire because you're saying, okay, this person is confident. They're coming in. They know their skill set. They know their value and they're willing to walk from it. Um, and that willingness to walk because you have put, put yourself in a good position is exponentially valuable to you as a, as an enterprise. And you got to think of yourself as your own business um, and how you want to operate yourself as a business, um, no matter if you're working for somebody or not. No, that's absolutely right. And, you know, I've kind of dealt with a lot of that over the last 10 years. You know, I started, you know, I've been an entrepreneur for 10 years, started in men's clothing and digital marketing and went through all the trials and tribulations of an entrepreneur trying to make it. And to be honest, I didn't make a dollar 
for eight out of the 10 years, right? Every single day I was waking up thinking, where's my next dollar going to come from? How am I? And when you're, you're chasing new opportunities and you can tell when you walk in and they can tell that you're vulnerable, that you need it. Right. And you become powerless and you become your decision-making becomes a lot weaker when you finally able to stand, you know, a, when you don't have to really worry about money anymore because you've made sound investments and you've you've grown accordingly and scaled accordingly. Now, when you start having those meetings, it's equals, right? And you get a lot more respect. And when you stop chasing opportunity out of desperation, you'll quickly realize opportunities start finding you. You know, it's just right. like, you know, I say this to my fiance all the time. You know, there was a period of time between, you know, my my ex and my fiance where I was like looking for my next relationship, you know, searching, searching. And it seems like when you look for things, you can never find them. You know, and when you stop looking for things, whether that's love, whether that's money, whether that's opportunity, they seem to find you much faster, right? There's no, it's the same thing with cannabis. So in any, in anything. So, you know, a message to all and you. That's sm- why I think it's so important to always keep in mind the don't be greedy mindset. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, I, it's all too often in this space that everybody is so focused on the money that they forget about the happiness. Yeah. Um, and I'm here to tell you as a person, like, don't give up your life for money. Um, you know, you want to work to live, not live to work. Um, and taking moments with your family, taking moments with your friends, um, taking the moments to enjoy where you are as your own enterprise is so important because I myself am guilty of this at different times in my life where mm-hmm. I forget what I'm doing this all for. Um, and if you always keep in mind why you're doing this and it's truthfully to bring joy, happiness, or help to others, then you're going to succeed. And I think that um, that's been core to our ethos. You know, with our fertilizer company, uh, we wanted to provide a quality product at a fair price. We saw that everybody was getting taken advantage of. And so we put in margins that were very under what most of the industry standard was to charge. But we know that, hey, we're not going to make a lot of money right away, but we'll make good money over time. And that tortoise versus the hare thing is so important because if you take it everything step by step, and you don't rush through the process and you're not just haphazardly looking for any and every opportunity, um, you're going to succeed exponentially better because you're making um, incremental gains that are longstanding. Um, so if you produce the best quality flour that you've ever grown, don't go and all of a sudden try and charge $1,000 more pound for it. Charge the same price that you were charging before now your business is going to grow and you could yeah. have that margin, you know, that's and that's going to be what sets you off. You know, I think that um, everybody sometimes gets so fixated on the dollar. Now, um, an uncle of mine had taught me this a long time ago. He would flip cars and he said, look, if I make $100 on the car today, that just means I get to go buy another car tomorrow. And so I'll, I'll make another $100 tomorrow and I'd rather make $100 a day that's right. than, um, you know, $300 in the week because yeah. at the end of the week, if I did $100 a day, I need $700. But if I sell that one car and make that $300 and by the time I go buy another car to get that another sale, yeah. I am not making, a, you know, only but one sale a week. So uh, that's that was such an impactful thing on yeah. my life and in my journey um, that a lot of us as cultivators get 
um, blown away by. And I think that, you know, when it comes to designing your facility as well, don't let all the bells and whistles and all the fancy things get to you, you know, make sure you're buying and purchasing and building things that are actually useful for what it is. You know, um, there's a lot of technology and innovations out there that seem exciting, but you have to always question, like, is it actually going to bring you yeah. a, a, a good ROI? And I mean, there's a, and test things too. Like, don't be afraid to buy something that is new because sometimes you don't know the ROI right away, but test it, you know, don't go on mass blanket, buy it and set it up in every room and everywhere yep. that you're operating, you know, test things out, trial it out, make sure it works. Um, and it'll go a long way, you know, and I have faith that anybody that's really listening to this, getting into this industry, that if you take the time, you perfect your craft, you do good business by others, um, you're going to succeed as a person. Um, and that's so important that you don't get disheartened by the people that are bigger or further than you. Um, you know, somebody's born every day, every minute, every second of, of every day of our year. And uh, those people that are being born right now have an opportunity in the future to build just as big of a company as we do today. Um, you know, it's never too late. I know people that started up breweries recently and are doing phenomenally well. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure they easily could have thought like, oh, wow, well, there's so many breweries and everybody's got this. I'll never succeed. But yeah. they they tried. And I think that's, that's so right. important that you actively try and take steps every day of your life um, to advance your position. You know, if you're not playing the game, you can never win. <laughs> that's exactly right. You know, especially in this industry is that, you know, there's a lot of noise with this. You know, it's this new shiny industry. There's tons of licensees coming online and new tech. And it's easy to kind of put yourself in this corner comparing yourself. Well, I only have 10 lights. This guy's got 50. This lady's got 100. You know, how am I ever going to make it? You got to block the noise out. You got to sometimes put your blinders on, say, this is what I'm going to focus on. Good for them. Be happy for the people around you that, you you know, that are succeeding and focus in your lane, right? Because your lane yep. may only ever be 40 lights. Or I tell people, hey, if you make the best cannabis infused chem kombucha or cannabis infused oatmeal cream pie, perfect that craft and take it to the, you know, to the end. You know, it's like, just focus on in your lane, master your craft. And I promise you people, regardless of what you do, even outside side of cannabis. If you put love into it, you put passion of it, you take care of the people around you, you will succeed. It's a very easy formula. And, uh, you know, you've really been a, a shining example of that. And uh, I'm thankful for everything that you've done for our industry. I, uh, I'm so, so appreciative of the time. I know you got a lot going on and a beautiful family and clients all over the country. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the time. Uh, this has been an absolute blast. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. And I, I look forward to further conversations and uh, I'm sure we'll do this again. Absolutely. Everybody, this has been another episode of Can Cannabis Cum Laude. Had a great conversation with Ramsey Nubani. Check him out on Instagram at Ramsey Nubani. Um, his new company, him and Josh Newlinger, JR Crop Tech, uh, an excellent new fertilizer company. Um, please check them out. They are doing some amazing things for our community. So again, Ramsey, thanks for everything, man. Pre really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much, Steve. Yeah. Hey guys, we'll see you next week. Thanks to our friends here at Rockbox Recording and Production in Rochester, New York. They are a full professional podcast and video studio designed by a radio guy for podcasters. Audio, video, voiceovers, editing, whatever. Mouth off at Rockbox at rockbox.com.
You can follow Cannabis Cum Laude on LinkedIn and all other social media platforms, as well as Cannabuzz. And if you'd like to help support the show, search up Cannabis Cum Laude on Patreon. And of course, all of those links are in the show notes. Thanks for watching and listening.